and a father who's a partner in the restaurant and leisure agency team at Hannock Green Retail. And alongside Emma is Jade Kappa, a senior associate in our commercial real estate team. Um, now, I have been more excited than usual, even more excited, I should say, <laughs> than usual about today's uh, podcast as we get to talk about one of my favourite topics, food. Yay! Um, and Jade and I have enjoyed quite a few good meals out in each other's company, including a memorable night where we group hugs Tom Kerridge. Uh, but she's not here today as my culinary partner in crime, because uh, actually in her day job she has also been involved in a number of significant lettings on the restaurant side of things. And meanwhile, Emma has put together deals in most, if not all, of the significant retail and leisure destinations across London, uh, which includes Kingley Court, Seven Dials, Borough Market and Coldrops Yard. So welcome to both of you. Oh, thank uh, you for having us. You're yeah, very welcome. You. Um, so just to kick off, I thought, um, can we run through uh, a few of the deals that you've been involved with of late, Emma? Thanks for having me. Um, well, one of the more recent deals that I've done that's recently opened is Socola Popular by the amazing Big Mama group from Paris, um, who've taken 8,500 square foot at Rathbone Place. And if you haven't been, it's an absolute Instagram haven. You must go immediately. <laughs> it's on my hit list. I've been to their sister restaurant, Gloria, which yeah. is amazing. And any restaurant that has a 10-layer lasagna is fine by me. <laughs> and a DJ in the kitchen. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, another one that's due to open kind of later this year, if not next year, actually, is Amazonica who've taken 8,000 square foot on Barclay Square, which is going to be very exciting. It's a, a restaurant from Madrid with fusion food, so that's one to look forward for, look forward to. Um, and Lena's are taking a statement unit up at King's Cross on Stable Street, which I'm very excited about. Actually, I was just Googling that this morning to see if it had opened yet or not. October, October. Okay. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, and then a couple of, um, those are larger sites. I also love doing some of the smaller attic, well, smaller sites. Um, Floor is another deal which I've done recently, which is by the amazing JKS group, who are fantastic. They also have hoppers and bow and shoe, which I've done with them. Um, so yeah, those are a couple of them. There's lots more I can talk about, but I won't bore you than that. <laughs> Jade? Um, well, the ones that I can talk about, so we've acted um, for the landlord at St Christopher's Place on uh, the Hoppers restaurant at their second site, uh, Home Slice, Harry's Bar, Ollie and Steen. Um, again, if you haven't been there, the cinnamon buns are absolutely yeah. incredible. <laughs> so you can basically just work your way down the street. Exactly, no yeah. starter of May. It's fantastic. Um, we've also done some deals with Shaftesbury as well um, in the Opera Quarter and Covent Garden, uh, Jadori, Grace and Feather, um, great wine place. Um, Ore is what we did together yeah. French Bakery yeah. which has gone in there and is doing really well I think as well yeah no, they've really hit the ground running which is great yeah um, and then a couple of other ones that I can't talk about yet but helping a uh, tenant with a prospective site in Chelsea um, and also um, some other sites in Mayfair which will hopefully be uh, common knowledge soon and nice and close to the office. Exactly. <laughs> so just leading on from that, Emma, how do you think the central London market's faring currently? I mean, it sounds like it's pretty busy. Yeah, I think like, quality operators are still performing. Um, if you Last week I was out in Soho and I couldn't get into a number of restaurants such as Kiln, Cricket, which deals that I've done and even trying to get in through the manager. Don't <laughs> <laughs> Those guys are still tra over-trading. Mm -hmm. I think kind of 
the way the market's moving now is people are taking less sites, much the same as retail, mm-hmm. in more prime locations. So your secondary locations are struggling slightly more than the primary ones, really. A1 Food is going through a bit of a kind of rebalance. You will have seen in the press uh, the likes of Eat and Avocado. They're really struggling. And I think that there is a lot more availability on that side with operators not really being able to kind of afford the rents. So just to confirm on the A1 side, so the A1 use classes for retail and shops, but on the food side includes sandwich bars and coffee shops. Yeah. Um, whereas most restaurants will operate within um, use class A3 premises, yeah. which allows sale of food and drink for consumption on or off the premises. Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> <laughs> you might want a premises license as well. Yeah. 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 Um, but it's A1 in particular. Um, yeah, it's the tired brands which haven't really refreshed their offer. They are also struggling, particularly in central London, where consumers are kind of demanding a better quality offer and yeah. they're not going to the old brands as much. There's a lot of competition. Yeah, exactly. And certain areas still sort of performing strongly? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've just done a couple of sites in Kingley Court, which are currently illegals, and we had a huge amount of interest on that. And then down at Borough Market, I've done a number of deals recently where the offers have been flooding in. But I think where private equity has recently rolled out and done, say, 20 sites a year, those days are very much over. And you've got people like White Rabbit Fund and JKS who've got a small collection of restaurants and they will roll out a number of sites throughout London, say one or two a year. And then instead of going kind of nationally and doing 15 in London, they'll go internationally instead and look at cities like Paris and Amsterdam rather than kind of oversaturation in London. Yeah. Um, So leading on from that, it would be interesting to talk about the particular challenges uh, from both landlord and tenant perspective. And I guess on the tenant side, looking both uh, at chain operators and independents. Who wants to kick us off? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think as Emma touched on, um, you know, we've got um, certain chains that have maybe overexpanded didn't invest, refresh their offering, perhaps took bigger spaces than they should have done to try and justify financial backing. Um, and obviously CBA is being the hot topic at the moment. Um, I actually went to a leisure property forum, the Great Leisure Debate, this morning, and there was uh, sort of six or seven panellists who were from um, throughout the uh, sort of hospitality world. And one of them was really stressing that CBAs are almost a necessary evil to flush out the tired, um, exhausted parts of the of the market, and what we're seeing now is hopefully going to be a good thing because those chains or restaurants or um, operators that survive will be better for it, and those that don't um, will kind of fall by the wayside and let new concepts come through. Um, I think another big challenge is obviously the rise of food markets, which is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. You know the kind of social aspect that you can meet up with people, and you know if one wants a burger and another wants a curry and that's totally easy to be able to cater for that um, and being able to sort of mix it up a little bit more that's definitely proving a challenge for more traditional operators and something that I'm seeing a lot more in sort of central London at least is this a real emphasis on turnover data yeah. um, so landlords really Absolutely. want to yeah, they almost want to anticipate there's going to be a problem yeah. uh, with their operators and try and deal with that quickly um, and are almost insisting now on clauses being included in leases 
um, which I think is a positive thing because it almost shows a bit of a collaborative approach yeah, between landlords and tenants rather than a hierarchy because you've got landlords you know, really buying into the tenants that they are letting to and similarly tenants are then you know, trying to show to landlords what they can do and that their turnover justifies their ability to trade from that space. Um, Are you seeing that both um, on new leases and where, um, say, you're doing renewal that's outside the 54 Act, so actually the terms are sort of open to negotiation? Yeah, I mean, landlords are definitely pushing for it. So, but central London estates um, kind of arguing that it's a reasonable modernisation where possible, um, or that other tenants have kind of bought into it with new leases that have been granted at the estates. Um, so they are, there is definitely a real push for it, and actually quite a lot of tenants are happy to provide that information because quite often in practice, you know, they will be involved in the kind of marketing of estates and the training information that's kind of part and parcel of that. So I don't think it's really putting tenants in a more onerous position, um, but it's definitely more beneficial for landlords. To, yeah, to I think that uh, all the landlords I deal with are more and more closely looking and analysing this turnover data, just exactly uh, to reiterate what you said, to preempt kind of possible voids in the portfolio and how we can manage that and kind of reduce that time as much as possible. Yeah, definitely. Then sort of looking at it from the operator side, what kind of challenges are there in particular? There, I mean, I suppose there are some challenges which are going to impact regardless of the size of the operation. Obviously, Brexit uncertainty is still there. People are still doing deals, but London is a bit cheaper, so we do have interna- more and more international people looking to come over, so that is a positive. Um, but yeah, in terms of the challenges, there's definitely food costs and people's concerns over that, particularly in the fast casual market, where they don't have huge margin there. Um, and also staffing, which again links back into Brexit, that is challenging for operators, and that comes up time and time again. And overheads such as rates and service charge, which have grown um, over the last few years. Definitely. And then I think also as well, this whole um, sort of ethical dining movement as well yeah. is putting more pressure on operators. So you've got restaurant chains like Oaxaca, who are the first carbon neutral restaurant group, and then other restaurants who self-promote by uh, sort of saying that you know they have concerns about animal rights or factory farming, or they don't use palm oil in anything that they produce. And again, that kind of focus on um, sort of ethics and better produce is only going to mean higher costs. And from, um, from the landlord's point of view, I mean, we've sort of talked about CBAs from, I guess, the, more the tenant side in that, you know, necessary evil, but from the landlord's point of view, obviously that creates challenges because, you know, they've been uh, collecting a certain level of rent and, you know, often in the CBAs they're being asked to take a significant rent cut. So in terms of kind of managing existing tenants, what kind of steps can landlords take to sort of, I mean, we've talked about the turnover side of things, which seems like that's going to help landlords stay really on top of where their tenants are. But what other things can they sort of do in practice? I think having that relationship is really key, a much closer landlord-tenant and much more of a partnership. Um, And also acting promptly is absolutely key in this market. Um, if, if you know it's going to happen, you need to be kind of lining up, getting your agents around, getting advice on it and getting out, speaking to people to kind of avoid those voids. Yeah. yeah. And then also marketing, I think, is, is key as well. Again, sort of going back to the central London estates, but, 
you know, if you've got landlords who are actively promoting their estate and, you know, who's trading there, you know, that's only going to be a good thing for tents and hopefully will increase their footfall. And then similarly, you know, a lot of restaurants obviously have Instagram, social media use. And again, if they're promoting their restaurant as part of a wider estate, then it's sort of creating this community that's only going to sort of be good for everybody involved. So are you seeing that built into leases where the tenant and the landlord are kind of under an obligation to absolutely one another. yeah it's becoming more and more I mean leases that we've done together yeah. you know there's specific wording for reference to estates whenever they do any kind of promotional stuff um you know annual um meetings about marketing and you know collaborations and ideas to sort of promote both landlord and tenant interests um, yeah I'm definitely seeing that more yeah. and leases. if one does well the other does well so exactly. yeah it's all one aim, aim of the game. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the restaurants that are doing well, what do you think they're getting right, Emma? Well, I think it's where quality, value and experience are really at the epicentre of that. I heard someone talking about entertainment the other day, where dining out is just more than eating. From the moment a reservation is made to leaving the restaurant, it's a collection of mini-experience that stay with the consumer and impact on whether they return or not. And I think this really resonates with kind of the restaurants that are doing it well at the moment. Big Mama, um, when you go to one of their restaurants, they've created such an amazing atmosphere and vibe and the food is great value that you can't help but have an amazing time and when you leave you leave happy and everyone's had a lovely time so I definitely think that they're doing it right a couple of the other operators are maybe slightly biased um, <laughs> yeah, there's nothing wrong with that <laughs> but Kiln I think um, do a fantastic job what they did in that space and the way that they kind of revolutionised Thai restaurants and they are other people doing an amazing job like Smoking Go um, and Somsa um, but Kiln on Brewer Street it it's incredible. Fantastic. Yeah, it's great. And then Barbary as well. Um, I, I've done all the deals with uh, Leo and Zoe, um, starting with Palomar, and I've always just believed in what they're doing in all of their sites. With Barbary, it's a tiny unit, really cramped for space. They've got 24 covers, and it's really about your experience in there. They could cram in more covers, but they've done it in a way to optimise the experience for the, um, for the consumer, which is amazing. It's intimate without being cramped or feeling like you have a chef in your face yeah. while you're sat at the counter. It's, it's, yeah, it's done very well, that kind of... Um, your ability to watch them cook amazing food and then being able to eat so closely and ask questions. Yeah, the interaction. Enjoy the whole thing. Yeah, it's really, really wonderful. And then floor as well. I think what those guys have done is incredible. And it's very accessible but with amazing quality quality produce um, and Cornerstone if you haven't been is absolutely amazing I've noticed um, it's not going because it's not that far from my house <laughs> but I haven't yet oh it's, it's very memorable I really distinctly remember everything I ate when I went there because it was yeah absolutely amazing um, and then I guess those are kind of more independent bespoke ones um, I have had the pleasure of doing lots of firsts um, with operators. So the first flat iron um, I did, I think he's done an amazing job, Charlie, and he'll continue to grow and he's made it cool and it's still accessible. 
Um, and just simple concepts yeah. that are so well done. It's really, really fantastic. And I think that is a concept that's got legs to grow. Mm-hmm. You, you can see more flat irons out there, and you can see it working outside London. Um, Definitely. And then Patty and Burn and Home Slice um, did the first sites for those guys as well, and they've done incredibly well. And I think that they'll continue to grow as well slightly. But they've done it in a slow, slowly, slowly, rather than having a huge amount of private equity. You've got to do 15 sites this year and next year. So I think that's why they've retained some of their coolness. I mean, on experience as well, I think, you know, restaurants that have a bit of novelty about them as well are still continuing to do well. People are getting excited about it in the market. So this whole, uh, um, the press coverage at the moment about the cheese restaurant, yes. about cheese restaurant. <laughs> I think everybody I've spoken to can't wait to go to that if you're a cheese lover. You know, restaurants like Bob Bob Ricard where you do get excited to go and ring that doorbell for champagne at yeah. the table. Um, you know, and I also went to um, a Great Women in Property event a couple of weeks ago at the Clink um, at Bristol yeah, Prison. that's supposed to be amazing. It's sort of the best scrambled eggs I've had in London. It was so oh. good. But the fact that you know that you're part of this um, sort of charitable initiative, you know, that's focusing on making people's lives better and helping offenders get their qualifications and knowing that, you know, hopefully when they then, you know, get released, they're, they're sort of set up to get a job yeah. and working with other restaurant and hospitality operators, you know, that work with the charity to make sure that happens. It's, it's a really nice feeling actually going to a restaurant yeah. and knowing that you're part of that. Um, so, Jade, you were just going to talk us through some of the sort of quirks of restaurant lettings. Absolutely. So, I think the key one for tenants really is ventilation and extraction. Um, if they can't operate their kitchen properly, then obviously that's the absolute nightmare scenario. So, you'll quite often have tenants. Uh, you know, really asking a lot of questions and wanting to do site visits to check what's there. The planning may need to be obtained if there is um, not sufficient um, equipment in place. And quite often, if you have a tenant who's taking, for example, a ground floor and basement premises, it may be that their uh, plant and equipment um, needs to go through the landlord's building and then might be placed on the roof. So again, another key thing for them is making sure that they've got a right to go and repair and maintain uh, anything that's not within their demise. Also, just from a kind of operational perspective, you know, hygiene, food, cooking, all, all of those kind of elements of a restaurant, they need to make sure that there's appropriate uh, sort of waste removal, recycling, that the kitchen can actually flow and operate um, in that kind of sense as well. In terms of leases, are slightly different to retail and office leases. We're still seeing tenants taking sort of 15, 20, 25 year fixed terms in central London with no breaks. And I think you're probably seeing the same deals that you're negotiating. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then when it comes to alienation, it's very typical for underletting not to be permitted um, or for the tenants to have any kind of ability to share with group companies. Um, Landlords quite often want to try and ensure that there's a single concept operated from the unit. Um, there might sometimes be scope for concessions uh, subject to landlord's consent, but I'm not seeing that a huge amount unless, again, you're buying into sort of a yeah. pop-up sort of style. No, exactly. Action. I think because they carefully, most of the estates that I work with, they carefully select the tenant going in, so they just don't want it kind of changing immediately to something completely different. Exactly. 
um, which is also then why a lot of landlords are asking for preemption rights, um, because then that gives them the opportunity to take back the space yeah. if they don't like a proposed assignee or if they just want to potentially regain control of the unit. We also see um, restrictions from landlords um, on some states in respect of trading names, so where they want to prevent tenants coming up with perhaps um, fruity or non-PC <laughs> names for their concepts. <laughs> A lot of landlords do ask for an ability to approve those, and I think as well it ties in with the brand that they're buying into. If they're wanting you know, a reputable brand, you know, which will hopefully attract customers and then in turn increase their turnover, you know, they want to know that the tenant's going to be operating under that guise. Another one where it's been a little bit of a, a sore spot every now and then is change of control provisions. Yeah, yeah, this is a tricky one. It is a tricky one because you may have landlords who are granting leases on the basis of the tenant's reputation, business experience, financial standing of a particular individual. Uh, so if that individual moves away from the brand, the landlord might want certain ability to review the position. It might be that you know, fixed, well-established models and personnel, you know, some tenants won't have this concern because they, they're, com- they're confident in how they operate. And um, it's more for kind of startups, JVs, that may need the ability for investors, backers, restaurateurs to be able to move on to their next project and release their capital, maybe relinquish their interest in that project. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if you're finding that on negotiations at yeah. the term stage, but that's something that I feel is becoming a, a greater focus is yeah, it's a bit challenging I must say and then just just quickly one other um, sort of sticking point is just on um, turnover rent I think Emma and I discussed this previously on, on some of our other deals but the whole movement towards online deliveries is proving a real uh, sore spot for landlords and tenants because quite often you have landlords arguing that any food that's prepared on site should be included in the turnover calculation because it's part of the premises you know where the food's being made but then you have tenants pushing for the fact that the food isn't actually consumed on site and therefore shouldn't be included. So I haven't really got a firm stance on what you know what the norm is on that because some landlords take a view and other ones are very, very Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's it's a bit of a grey area still, and there's no right or wrong answer really on it. And it depends how much you want the operator and how much they are kind of trying to negotiate that point out. Absolutely. And then just a final point on the sort of traditional restaurant model. Um, you usually have a base rent um, with a top, turnover top-up. Um, that's pretty common in sort of central London yeah. uh, lettings. Um, on the assumptions and disregards, you usually have the assumption that any uh, trade licences would be in place. And on disregards, you usually um, have any turnover rent provisions disregarded. I think that's, that's pretty normal now yeah. in restaurant lettings. Um, and then just quickly on food hall operators, um, so they have a slightly different model, much shorter term, usually um, three to 12 months, very much turnover driven. And I think that's on the basis that if the tenant's doing well, the landlord's happy, they get more turnover rent, um, obviously encourages tenants to then buy into the whole food hall community um, and try and increase their business and trade um, you know, if they want to keep their spot. Um, it's kind of a bargaining chip for them, really. I went to, again, to to plug a leisure property forum, but another discussion, <laughs> another discussion on um, food halls um, about six months ago, um, and they talked about the kind of holy trinity of aspects which make for a successful food hall operation, 
Uh, the first of which was a landmark building, some of architectural merit or interest that really brings the scheme to life. So, I mean, it's been in the press again recently that Mercato Metropolitano are looking to move to an amazing, great, one-listed building mm. in Mayfair. So that's a kind of classic example of that. We've got Time Out Market coming towards the Yeah, 2021? Yeah, 2021, they're due to open. Um, and the second uh, sort of aspect is about demographics, so making sure you appeal to your locals. So a site in Old Spitalfields, for example, is going to have a very different feel to, say, the prints in West Brompton. Um, and I think the final point for sort of a successful food hall operation is the location. Um, is this somewhere people can pop in for lunch or dinner or meet friends? Um, is it accepted by the community? I think that's pretty key as well. Mm-hmm. You know, concepts like Dinorama in Shoreditch, you know, the, the locality are really bought into that and there's always queues out the door. Yeah. So what do you think, getting your crystal ball out, uh, what do you think the future holds for the London restaurant market or the restaurant market in general, actually? Where do we go from here? So I think that experience is key and that's true now but I think that going forward that's going to be the case um, people kind of want that instant moment they want something memorable to take away from an evening now just popping out for a quick pizza isn't enough for a lot of people so food is fashion and people are saying where you eat and drink defines you and your digital self um, as a social currency and I think moving forward, that's going to continue to grow. Um, consumers are becoming much wiser and demanding more authenticity as well. Yeah, so Indian cuisine, I think, is a good example of that. You know, the rumour that tikka masala was invented in Glasgow in the 70s, and we've now got operators like Gymkhana, Cricket, Dishoom, serving the kind of legitimate, authentic Indian stuff. Not that I don't like a tikka masala. Um, but it's this move away from kind of artificial you know english born indian food to actual proper amazing indian food yeah no absolutely and yeah we mentioned earlier um the more mindful consumer where they actually care about where their food's coming from um and sustainability i think kind of people do care definitely and technology wise is the sector kind of embracing technology I feel like it's kind of a two-tiered split. So there's some that are kind of very traditional hospitality and they invest heavily in their staff, you know, everything about where it's grown and all the products from. And I feel like they, they'll have Instagram to kind of showcase some of their dishes, but they're not going to kind of put iPads menus in their units because that's not what they're about. What about on the kind of delivery? We touched on the delivery side of things in terms of um, landlords and tenants earlier, but do where do you see that kind of market going? I think it's only going to grow. Isn't yeah, it? I mean the projections already for those existing companies. You've got um, high-end delivery services like Supper being crowdfunded as well because people really want to buy into to that kind of option if they do want to have kind of luxury food at home. And I think for me the the biggest uh, sort of Mystic Meg prediction is just. The continued um, rise of food markets, basically. I think we're just going to keep seeing more and more in London. Um, the only thing I do wonder about is whether they'll get to be a sort of saturation point in the market, particularly where you've got places like the Curve Arcade Market Hall that's going to be coming to the old BHS site in Oxford Circus um, in November 2019. Hopefully. Hopefully. Okay, fingers <laughs> crossed. Um, and then, you know, potential other schemes that haven't maybe been announced yet. 
and I, I hope that it's a case that these places continue to thrive because they're just so amazing and it's not a case that again sort of like the restaurant revolution ends up being vacancies in places because people uh, sort of lose the love and the kind of novelty of going to food halls and food markets but you know the way that the London ones are put together and the operators and the quality of the, the sort of offerings that they have there I can't really see that happening anytime soon um, I think also the move towards interactive restaurants like Emma touched on um, again to heart back to this very interesting talk I went to this morning <laughs> um, but one of the uh, panel guests was talking about um, how much he um, buys into technology and automation and wants to bring that into the kind of restaurant schemes that he works on in London um, and actually hopped on a train to Paris yesterday to go and see the first fully automated restaurant to see what it was all about but got there and the place was closed due to <laughs> yeah, they couldn't make the technology work for some reason so might be a little bit more work in that area before that becomes a, you know, a centric part of London eating. Well, I could talk about this all day, but I suppose we'd better wrap it up. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Um, and if listeners would like to find out any more about Forsters, you can um, click on our website, forsters.co.uk. Or if you'd like to know a bit more about Hanover Green Retail, Emma? Hanovergreen.co.uk. Um, and on the social media front, we are on uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Emma? And we're just on LinkedIn, but we're going to really have to up our game, I think. <laughs> um, and if you would like to listen to any more of our More Than More podcasts, um, you can access them via SoundCloud, Apple Music, or Spotify. And until next time, goodbye. podcast is for general information only and should not be considered to be professional advice. Forsters LLP accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct or consequential loss arising from the use of, reliance on or reference to this podcast. Forsters LLP makes no warranty or representation as to the accuracy of the information contained in this podcast. The more than podcast and all copyright in it is the property of Forsters LLP and it should not be used, reproduced or quoted, whether in whole or part, without Forsters LLP's prior written